right. Uh, so let's uh, move forward. Uh, uh, let's go through uh, initial hepatitis C treatment, including co-infection. Um, these are the learning objectives. Uh, we'll be applying guidance-based strategies for hepatitis C treatment initiation. We're going to describe the specific nuances of hepatitis C treatment in people with HIV. So this is a case. This is a 33-year-old Caucasian female who presents to primary care clinic for routine follow-up. She's been recently diagnosed with hepatitis C. She is treatment naive. Her risk factors include history of injection, drug use, in remission for many years. She takes no medications. She's otherwise healthy. She's engaged in care and motivated to take DAAs. She has HCV genotype 1B uh, with uh, 4 million copies uh, per ml. Basic labs are within normal limits. She's got fibrosis stage 0 to 1. So you realize that the patient is a candidate for eight weeks of lecaprevir, pibranasvir, or ledipasvir, sofosbuvir. Otherwise, current eight-week regimens should not be considered for one of these other options. Please go ahead and vote. You'll be okay, eight weeks will be okay, one of those two regimens, for all options but one. Please vote. Lots of soul searching, we got five votes so far. of you voted that would not be um, appropriate to treat interferon-experienced patients, uh, but in fact, uh, you're going to see that uh, this option would apply, perhaps not this option. Uh, patients with genotype 1A HCV, nobody voted that one, and that's a, a correct answer, or at least not, not, not the, the one we're looking for. Patients with non-genotype 1 HCV, in fact, uh, this uh, option here, the clapravipibranosvir is pangenotypic, so it would be appropriate for non-genotype 1 HCV uh, as long as they're not cirrhotic. So in cirrhosis, like most of you actually got the question right, eight weeks is too short of a duration for those patients who are harder to treat. So when we look at the clapravir, pribanosvir, as a regimen, it really expanded the pool of populations that we can now uh, uh, give eight weeks of therapy compared to 12. So the endurance trial, you can see very nice SVR rates across the board. And you can see that the patient characteristics, you had 62% treatment naive, but lots of them were actually experienced. Uh, and, and of course, uh, patients with uh, multiple genotypes. So one of the limitations, perhaps, of the trial is that the numbers of patients with advanced fibrosis or fibrosis in stage three was limited, and that's one of the very reasons why uh, we shouldn't be using that duration of eight weeks in, in that population, but no difference when you compare 12 uh, versus eight weeks. 
Now with Ledipa's view, so possible view, the data is pretty much similar as you compare arms, 12-week uh, arms and 8-week arms. You can see very few cases of relapse, but a trend, definitely a trend of more cases that relapsed when you had these eight-week arm. And again, uh, limited numbers of patients that were treated that had advanced fibrosis. Uh, furthermore, when you look at uh, uh, viral loads cutoff, you had actually a higher tendency of relapse, up to 10% when the, the patients had a viral load greater than 6 million copies uh, per ml. And another interesting trend is that despite the overall efficacy pretty similar in different uh, racial groups, when you do the breakdown by duration, then the relapse rates in black patients were as high as 8.6%. So for that very reason, um, the guidance reflect that, that this data, and you would say that for all the four leading options we have now available, uh, either Alba's view, Rosopra view, Blecapra view, Pibrana's view, uh, LEDSOF, and SOFTVAL, uh, you're going to be, be able to use uh, eight weeks for GP, but also LEDSOF with an observation that uh, as long as you're non-black, HIV uninfected, and with a viral load range less than 6 million uh, units per ml. Those will be an appropriate population for eight weeks, but otherwise it should be used in two hours. And the cirrhosis question is also reflecting the guidelines where all regimens should be for 12 weeks, and all of a sudden, uh, for experienced patients, you don't have the lead soft option anymore because if you want to keep the efficacies greater than 92% with that specific option in compensated cirrhosis, you would have to add ribavirin if it happens that they are treatment experienced. Okay? Randy, you got a question? Oh, okay. All right. Can you hear me better now? Okay. All right. So uh, the question was about compensated cirrhosis. So um, if you uh, if you're looking at this regimen, uh, Ledipasvir, Sofosbuvir, for the experienced patients, and they have compensated cirrhosis, now we're adding two factors two factors of poor response uh, to your treatment decision. And we saw, we observed with that regimen in the pivotal trials that the efficacy in that specific subgroup would not reach 90%. So it was dropped as a preferred option in favor of the other three for the experienced ones uh, treated for 12 weeks. All right, can you hear me better now? Okay. Uh, Dana, does that answer your question? Okay. So uh, the case continues. Now a prior authorization was submitted to insurance for eight weeks of GP. The following week, the patient calls the office to report new onset nausea and vomiting. And 
uh, after further questioning, the patient actually missed her last period and, um, and you bring her back to clinic and her pregnancy test is positive. As you're waiting, the hep C treatment should be approved. So the patient is actually pretty happy with the news, but she's concerned about HCV infection. So you, uh, please go ahead and vote. You would let the PA proceed. This is a robovirin-free regimen. Would you cancel the application since DAAs are overall highly teratogenic? You would remain open to treat and prevent vertical transmission in doing so and using DAAs in that setting. You would refer to high-risk prenatal care up front, no matter what. Or you would wonder about universally testing pregnant patients for HCV. Now that you just saw the case, please go ahead and vote. All right, uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, spread. And uh, th there is some room for interpretation on, on, on the uh, answer number four, which is not necessarily wrong answer, but I was really looking for uh, answer number five, where you would be actually be more open-minded to universally screen pregnant patients. And I, I hope to share some, some interesting information that uh, might be uh, eye-opening and actually impacting the ways uh, HCV guidance uh, is treating the topic. So uh, in considering women in childbearing age and pregnancy, a few things to keep in mind is that robovirin is highly teratogenic, um, as, as you guys know uh, from our uh, training sessions. And DAAs uh, bears a, a B-risk category, and it's not recommended to be used in pregnancy. It is probably safe if it happens. Uh, I actually had a case where the patient found out that she was pregnant in the last month of treatment, um, and she uh, had uh, feelings of uh, um, uh, pregnancy termination, but she decided to go ahead with pregnancy knowing that the risk is not uh, extreme. Uh, we just don't have that in humans uh, to prove that it's safe like it is in animals. So DAAs are actually recommended before pregnancy whenever feasible to reduce the risk of vertical transmission and counseling uh, definitely should happen, and the patient should know it's better actually to avoid pregnancy before they're treated for hepatitis C. And the pregnancy testing is definitely recommended prior to any regimen that uses robovirin, which is a not very common thing anymore, thankfully, and definitely should be offered. It's not a requirement, but should be offered prior to uh, using DAAs. So another question that is very common uh, in, in um, HCV-infected mothers is the risk of transmission uh, to, to the offspring. And, and older studies would indicate that this risk is less than 3%. But a recent meta-analysis actually indicated that in HCV, uh, mono-infected or HIV-negative women, the risk might be actually as, uh, a little higher than that, 5.8%. 
but mostly driven by uh, a large study that uh, in that particular cohort, the risk was actually 10% and had a large sample size and was probably driving a little more of the higher risk. And definitely uh, much higher risk in HIV co-infected women because they bear higher viral loads and lower immunity, which approaches 11%. So as we see the opioid epidemic and we see um, uh, trends of acute HCV uh, incidence, mostly in rural areas, but also in urban areas, an interesting phenomenon going along with that is that half of the um, young population's injection drug users are actually women in reproductive age. And that actually impacts uh, uh, deeply the HCV detection rates in those young women, and also the testing rates through pregnancy and the children uh, um, aged up to two years, not only in the US uh, as a whole, and you can see the trends going up 14 and 22% nationwide, but in areas like Kentucky, um, outrageous increases of 150%, uh, 200% in the testing rates and diagnosis in, in kids. Same thing for the proportion of infants born of HCV-infected mothers has increased, both in the country and overall, and, and also in Kentucky, where they, uh, the CDC was uh, very interested in this analysis, and this is data uh, based on birth certificates. And you can see as well from the CDC um, National Notified Diseases Surveillance System, as well as what they can gather from Quest Diagnostics in matching these databases, is that now we actually see uh, more reported cases of hepatitis C in young women compared to women of um, uh, older groups, and also, that when you look at the Quest database, the screening yield in, in pregnancy um, in recent years has been 0.73%, which is a reasonable yield. If you compare it to HIV yield screening programs, it usually ranges from 0 0.25, 0.5%. In hepatitis C programs might be actually on the lower end of it, but it's still significant, and they can actually make pretty good uh, um, estimates from this, if you take into account that uh, we're counting 3.9 million life births every year, with that screening yield, they can actually estimate that almost 30,000 uh, HCV-infected mothers um, had babies, and perhaps 1,700 of those nationwide actually were born with Hep C infection. So. Um, there is a, a, a pragmatic view that we should be universally screening for hepatitis C, and, and that actually, this piece of data, perhaps uh, gives support of that idea. But actually, if you look at the recommendations that the CDC has, we should be universally screening all baby boomers, but key groups, including pregnant women, are not included uh, necessarily on the targeted risk-based screening as of yet, uh, we have all these other higher risk groups here considered to be higher risk, but uh, general population, pregnant women, um, uh, in, in other situations are not including, uh, included on the recommendations. Uh, but it is actually a phrase nowadays in the HCV guidance that all pregnant women should be tested for HCV infection. I guess, um, 
experts looking at this may not have the uh, policy formalities that the CDC might be concerned about or the uh, cost effectiveness that might have to come into play uh, to make our health system to pay for the screening. But you can see that it's a strong language perhaps from uh, um, uh, expert guidance um, advocating at least that we should be testing them. All right, so our patient then, uh, she returns for follow-up, and she's, she's been uh, out of care for a while. And she brings her two-year-old baby boy. The pregnancy was uneventful. The child tested negative for HCV at 18 months. And since pregnancy, she was started on atorvastatin, 40 milligrams, combined with, and a combined oral contraception option, and she's doing well on it. So she wants to get back on track with uh, treatment. So which of the following then would be the most reasonable approach? Use GP for eight weeks and routine follow-up. You do GP and you monitor closely. You do GP and you decrease the dose of atorvastatin to 20 milligrams. GP with a change of the combined oral contraception to a progestin-based contraception. You would avoid protease inhibitors altogether, and Vibranosvir and the GP regimen is the protease inhibitor. Excuse me, the glicaprovir is the protease inhibitor. Or you consider other options that may or may not include PIs. Please go ahead and vote. So um, the question you're looking for is, um, is to perhaps change the progestin-based contraception, I think would be very reasonable. Uh, there is a key interaction between uh, glicaprovir and um, estradiol, so if you're doing progestin alone, it would be okay. Um, decreasing the dose of atorvastatin um, might not be the best option. They're actually uh, contraindicated to be used together. Uh, regardless of the dose. So when you're looking at drug-drug interactions, um, let me just go over the basics for the four lead options we have quickly. So for Ledipasvir, so Fosbuvir, PPIs, you should not be used more than 20 milligrams, or you should take Ledipasvir, um, so Fosbuvir at the same time, and you should also do a, a, an equivalent approach with ranitidine, so you should not use more than 150 milligrams twice a day, and you should take the hepatitis C medicine at the same time of the morning or evening dose. In Muderon, as Dr. Kim have mentioned in previous talk, it's a black box warning for all uh, hep C regimens by an unknown mechanism of action. It increases the levels of Muderon uh, to the point of cinematic bradycardia, so that, that's uh, a big no-no. Digoxin should be used at the lowest dose possible in monitor during therapy. In terms of uh, um, anti-seizure medicines, like phenytoin, carbamazepine, and barbitol, they're not okay to be used. They're strong inducers, 
of the hepatitis C um, uh, metabolism and you decrease the concentrations to, to the point that you would induce treatment failures. But some other seizure medicines like um, nevodiracetam, lamotrigine, and viproic acid, they're okay. Rifampin, you should not co-administer for the same reasons uh, that you do not co-administer hep C medicines with phenytoin. And herbal medicines should also be avoided either by decreasing the levels of hep C drugs or increasing them to toxicity. So that's uh, uh, more or less the bulk of the interactions that come to mind, and you're welcome to look uh, at those interactions online. And when you look at the other lead options uh, following uh, the first one we discussed, it, it kind of becomes a recruiting theme, perhaps with a few exceptions. So for soft veil, uh, PPIs would not be recommended to co-administer by the label. Everything else is pretty similar to uh, Ledipasvir, Sofosbuvir. In terms of Elbasvir, Grozoprovir, now you're not as concerned about PPIs and ranitidine, and there is not really any significant interactions with digoxin, and everything else is, it tends to be uh, pretty similar. And for Claprovir, Pibrenosvir, it's similar to, to Elbasvir, Grosoprovir as a Sofosbuvir free regimen, so you have the same classes so you, uh, of drugs, so you, you expect similar interactions. But there is one key exception, which is in birth control pills, you would not co-administer uh, if they have estradiol, uh, if it is an estradiol-containing uh, option for contraception. And in terms of statins, if you, if you have to come up with a table in, in a breakdown, you can see how the GP option would be contraindicated concomitant use with simvastatin, lovastatin, and atorvastatin. And for Elbasvir, Grosoprovir, you have to be careful as well, mostly because of the protease inhibitor component of it and interactions with the, the statins, increasing the statin levels that might, um, might cause myalgias and, and increases in uh, liver enzymes. So this is the same website, Dr. Kim, and just to reinforce, uh, this, this is the, the, the website that I like the most as well. And, and, and when we have the calls and discussions, I always have it on, um, so we can have the um, uh, best assessment of, of our um, uh, drug uh, medication reconciliation. So in terms of first line, uh, Elbasvir, Grosoprovir, um, this is a single tablet in fixed dose combination. It's indicated 12 weeks in genotypes 1 and 4. It requires a drug resistance testing at baseline for pre-existing resistance substitutions whenever you're trying to treat genotype 1A HCV. And you should not be using that, this regimen because it, is, it, it contains a protease inhibitor in decompensated cirrhosis and you do not need any uh, dose adjustment in uh, CKD stage four or five. So for GP, uh, it's, it's a, uh, um, a um, fixed dose combination where you take three tablets um, at the same time once a day, and you can use for eight weeks if they're not cirrhotic, as I mentioned, you do have to use for 12 weeks if they have cirrhosis. It's a pangenotypic option, and you use next generations and S5 inhibitor and a protease inhibitor, so you do not really have a need for resistance tests in the baseline, regardless of the genotype you're treating. Uh, and definitely you should uh, avoid decompensated cirrhosis for the same reason. Lead soft, again, just like uh, Elbus Vigrosoprovir, it's also a fixed dose combination in single tablet. 
no resistance testing is necessary. It is safe in decompensation because it's a uh, non-PI-based regimen, and it's not recommended, however, in CKD stage four or five because you, you really have uh, to have GFRs greater than 30 for, for safe dosing and, and those recommendations. And lastly, similarly to lead soft, but just with an exception that soft value is pangenotypic, everything else tends to be uh, similar to uh, soft valve as they're both a uh, nucleotide-based regimen. So moving forward uh, um, to uh, HIV, HCV co-infection, um, uh, two more cases that, that I have. So the first one is uh, the, what is the appropriate approach for initiating treatment in a person with newly diagnosed HCV genotype 1A infection and HIV co-infection with a CD4 cell count of 300 cells who is hepatitis B surface antigen negative? So what, what would you do? Those are the, the options. The sequencing of HCV therapy and antiretroviral therapy should be individualized. Antiretroviral therapy should begin before HCV therapy. HCV therapy should begin before antiretroviral therapy. Or HCV therapy and HIV therapy should begin simultaneously or you're not really sure what, what really should be the best sequencing or the approach. What do you think, Marta? All right, number two. So mo most, of, most of you guys are actually Going with number two. Um, yeah, so, so the, the right answer to this, maybe the, the answer I was looking for is, is answer number one, that the, the approach should be individualized. But, but I, I give you guys credit that most of the time, uh, HIV therapy would be given first. As Dr. Sherman mentioned, it's really important to suppress uh, HIV virus to, to, to preserve liver function or, or prevent uh, further liver injury. However, um, um, despite ERT initiation it has to be prioritized for many patients, there are some instances that treatment readiness with DAAs for 8 to 12 weeks might actually be different than someone that it has to commit to lifelong HIV medicines. And in fact, uh, sometimes you see HCV cure as a way of engaging them in long-term HIV care. So for that situation, it's perhaps uh, a reason why we should personalize and, and, and just be open-minded that perhaps we want to give hep C treatment first in, in a minority of these situations. And of course, there is a theoretical, more a theoretical benefit that achieving hepatitis C cure might actually make this liver now less prone to drug liver injury from the HIV medicines you're about to start. So if HIV medicines are initiated first, you should wait at least a month, six weeks, just to make sure the patient is doing okay on the HIV medicine before you um, start the hep C treatment. 
So as Dr. Sherman mentioned, it's really important to suppress the virus. You can see the difference in the survival curves of uh, HIV-positive patients uh, versus HIV-negative that have hep C co-infection. So the survival curve in the, um, decompensated cirrhosis is um, uh, definitely different. And also, if you um, uh, compare both populations of co-infection versus mono-infection, the patients that has um, the probability of hepatic decompensation in the ones with controlled HIV is much lower than the ones that has uncontrolled HIV. And it's both much higher than the ones that only have hepatitis C versus, and, and that same um, logic applies to CD4 counts. Those are the probabilities of decompensation with a high CD4 count, great, uh, lower CD4 count, high CD4 count greater than 200, and patients that have hepatitis C mono infection. So just to uh, exemplify the comment Dr. Sherman made, uh, ART decreases hepatic decompensation in a meaningful way. Now, despite the importance of treating HIV in the setting of hepatitis C infection, uh, the rates of response with older regimens was actually um, uh, abysmal almost to genotypes one and four, and, and perhaps uh, more significant in terms of efficacy for genotypes two and three, but it's still not satisfactory. And, and just, just to, to pick on Johns Hopkins again, so just as an example, uh, a premier center in the country in those years of interferon, out of 800 patients co-infected, you would go through the care cascade and only few of them would have treatment initiated, maybe 30 of them and would be able to cure only six out of a cohort of more than 800 patients. But this has changed dramatically because of the revolution Dr. Kim has just uh, uh, was talking about, and now you basically have the same options to treat HIV as you would have to treat hepatitis C mono infection, and you have great rates of response, and you use in a very similar way that you would use the, these medicines um, in um, mono-infected hep C populations, um, with one caveat is that now you're mixing hep C medicines with HIV medicines. And now in 2018, the, the first-line HIV treatments, they have integrase inhibitors combined with two nucleotides, and one of the first-line options might have a strong inducer in cobicistat. But a lot of patients that actually now, they're still using protease inhibitors as well. And the reasons for, for choosing uh, an HIV regimen, uh, uh, regimen A versus B or C, may vary with uh, uh, several factors. For, the, for those of you that don't really treat HIV, uh, it's based on the HIV viral load, on what CD4 count you're dealing with, the creatinine clearance, uh, some genetic factors that might influence uh, if you're going to avoid abacavir versus not, as well as a co-infection with hepatitis B, uh, risk of osteoporosis, and, and the pregnancy status. So in mixing uh, those uh, two regimens, now you have th this extensive and, and complicated um, uh, table that summarizes multiple uh, pharmacokinetic studies um, uh, trying to sort out what happens to drug levels when you mix them together. But if you pay attention to, to one common theme in this table is if you look at the PI containing hep C options, like uh, GP and Elbus Vigor Zoprevir, 
those are the ones that gives you more trouble because you're mixing a protease inhibitor with another HIV protease inhibitor, and that's when you get the, the, the red boxes on the table. So as long as you're not mixing PIs uh, for both diseases, uh, you should be okay, or at least um, uh, in, in, the, um, in the caution uh, uh, range. There is also some concern and uh, some of the options that might increase atenophobia levels, which is becoming less of an important issue now that most patients are actually taking uh, TAF, which is a uh, safer option kidney function-wise compared to uh, tenofovir. So uh, with that uh, uh, information, so this is another question for you. As a 58-year-old man with co-infection, he's tolerating at a Xanavir, Ritonavir, plus Lamivudine. So this is a uh, HIV uh, protease inhibitor with a, uh, two nucleotides, Lamivudine and Tenofovir. He's tolerating this well, and he's got a suppressed HIV with less than 20 copies and a pretty good CD4 count. His hepatitis B surface antigen is negative with a GFR that is in uh, normal range. He has genotype you know, 1A and he is treatment naive. His HCV viral load is 1.43 million with the stage 2 fibrosis. His insurance approves 12 weeks of Elbosvir, Grosoprovir for HCV treatment. Let's say that's the, the formulary option for this patient, which has a protease inhibitor with an NS5A inhibitor. So, what would you do here? Starting Grosoprovir, Elbosvir. What would you recommend to avoid drug-drug interactions? So would you continue boosted atazanavir plus the two nucleotides? Would you switch to ritonavir? Would you switch to elvitegravir with cobicistat? Would you switch to entricitabine tenofovir with an integrase inhibitor? Or would you interrupt ART for 12 weeks as you take Grazaprovir Albasvir. Or you're unsure. They do. They do. They do. <laughs> All right, yeah, so I, I, I would expect that maybe not folks from MAO, I'm pretty sure that they, uh, they, they get this right. Yeah, so uh, a, a pretty good option would be to avoid HIV protease inhibitors, and, and option four is the one that you would switch to something to treat HIV that doesn't have that class of drugs. So lastly, just to, to uh, finalize, I want to share this piece of data with you. As we're scaling up hep C treatment, we, we come across high-risk populations of injection drug users um, and, um, and men who have sex with men infected with HIV. And, and the reinfection question comes up very often. Is it worthwhile? What, what's the risk? How big of a problem reinfection is? So this data from a, uh, a European cohort uh, of all comers with hepatitis C infection were 
12% of them are men who have sex with men, and 37% of them are injection drug users. When you follow them over time, actually men who have sex with men are responsible for 87% of the, the, the reinfections. So the risk uh, per 100 person years is like much higher in this population than it is in injection drug use. And, and, drive, and because this is the minority, it doesn't drive too much of the overall risk uh, over there. So you really have to look uh, uh, um, at, at the situation, and, and it is definitely driven by high-risk sexual behavior that may be associated with uh, uh, illicit drug use as well. And then when you look at uh, the, this other uh, uh, cohort where uh, patients are, th those are all HIV-infected patients, and you can see that out of 7.3 episodes of reinfection per 100 person years, actually 27 out of 64 of them had actually the second episode of reinfection. So this is something that, that, that circulates in the, in the sexual networks and, and it becomes a challenge for, for disease elimination if you really want to scale up in that population. But I, I think the encouraging piece is that in injection drug users, perhaps you will not expect that such of a higher risk. And, and if you can change behavior on the MSM population, perhaps that, that would incur much lower risk as well. So take home points, uh, HIV accelerates natural history of HCV, plentiful options to treat HIV patients now, uh, effective treatments, uh, can avert complications and reinfection is definitely an issue, as I just mentioned. Any questions? Dr. Franco, you mentioned uh, that if the hepatitis B surface antigen is negative, you don't mention anything about the core antibody. It's, I, I thought if the core antibody was positive for B, there's a small chance of a bouldering low-grade infection, and you ought to check for BDNA. For BDNA. Dr. Smith, just repeat the question. With the confusion with the microphones, I, I lost you. Sure. You mentioned the hepatitis B surface antigen. You never said anything about the antibody, and it's my understanding that if the core antibody is positive, there's a small chance of smoldering infection, and before you treat them, anybody with hepatitis B, you ought to get a BDNA. Yes, that, that's a, uh, a common uh, situation we see uh, in our consultations. So you're talking about patients with a core um, antibody and a negative surface antigen. Right. That. Right. That that could eventually be uh, have um, uh, um, uh, hepatitis B expression and, and a detectable viral load, which which can happen, especially if there's surface antibody negative as well. So uh, yes, those patients. Uh, uh, there is um, much debate in what to do. And what we have been doing is to refer to hepatologists so they can uh, make a decision if they're going to treat these patients or not, and if they can have a comprehensive evaluation in terms of chronic liver disease in a general sense, as Dr. Sherman has mentioned, uh, so, so you can make a decision if you're going to commit them to hepatitis B treatment 
before you commit to see. I'll, I'll comment because, uh, yeah. Um, so the situation you're talking about is called occult hepatitis B. And uh, you can have significant reactivation from occult hepatitis B. Um, there are two approaches when you see such a patient. Uh, one of them is, let's start with the anti-core. That's the first thing. Anti-core, surface antigen negative, those patients, you could either get HBV DNA or you could choose to try and vaccinate them because some of them actually lost the uh, surface antibody and will have a response to the antibody. And either direction. If you find that, that the HBV DNA is, is present, you again have two choices. If the patient is not HIV on a regimen that contains tenofovir or another HBV active agent, you can make a decision to put that patient on an HBV active agent, or you can choose to watch them and monitor them, and people argue about what do you monitor, and some people would monitor the HBV DNA, and a rise of over a few thousand would indicate a flare developing, and you would then start treating. Others would argue for an increase in ALT during hep C treatment and start treatment then. So again, you could go either way. In the co-infected patients, because the majority are on a backbone nuke regimen that is HBV active, not all, but most, uh, it becomes irrelevant because they're not gonna break through if they're on that, that regimen, and so it's not really an issue. In mono-infected patients, um, occult B is, occurs at an even lower percentage than in co-infected patients, and in general, the flares that have been described with hep C treatment, the black box warning, have in pretty large cohorts only occurred in the surface antigen positive patients, not in those that are anti-core alone. So most nowadays would simply monitor those patients, but again, what are you monitoring for? Well, ALT rise would certainly be an indicator that that could be what's going on. And if you're looking for it at four-week intervals, you have plenty of time to get some uh, hep B active treatment on board. Sorry, it's a complicated answer because it's a complicated question. That, that, that's great, Kent. Have you restarted someone that had a cold hep B? Oh, yeah, we see this all the time. And uh, if, if we find that they are DNA positive, because we do DNA testing first, but we have access to that. It's something that we've been looking at occult B in various populations for years. We do make sure all those patients are on HBV active agents rather than waiting. But, uh, you know, that doesn't make it the right answer. It makes it a choice. Thank you. Any other questions? It's a workshop, <laughs> so this is your chance. <laughs>